Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. My name is Josh Hollowell. Uh, I'm a ruling elder here at the church and a ministry intern, uh, as well as uh, my wife and uh, I are on staff with Crew, uh, raising our support to be uh, placed at Ball State. So uh, we are here long term and excited to be here. Uh, I'm excited to, to bring this message this morning. Um, and uh, children can be dismissed for. Chi- Is there children's church? No, there's no children's church. Never mind. That was last service. Getting all confused. Okay, uh, well, this morning we're going to look at the book of Esther. So if you want to turn there, uh, we are not going to read it before the message, but we're going to unpack it throughout. So you can go ahead and turn there. If you turn to the book of Psalms and flip back two books, there's Esther. We'll be in chapter 4. So let me pray for us real quick and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you are the God of the nations. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would accomplish the purpose to which you set your word this morning. Lord, that you would transform our hearts and our lives to be in accordance with your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the onset of this message, you should know two things. One is that we have inadequate time this morning. So we are actually in part two. I preached part one first service, and we're going to preach part three third service. Just kidding. That would be fun, though, right? Uh, But we will only be scratching the surface of God's global cause among the nations. So I urge you to continue your study of this through the life groups, which will be discussing sermon questions, and through reading some of the resources that I will uh, allude to throughout the service. Also, I want you to know that the other inadequacy this morning is me. In preparing this sermon, which has been a great joy, as those of you who know me know that global missions is a passion of mine, The Holy Spirit has also convicted me in the ways that I fail to have an all-consuming passion for God's mission to make disciples of all nations. I get distracted from the mission, I fall in love with the world, and I forget to pray for the nations and care about them coming to know Jesus. So I say that this morning to know that this is a message that I'm preaching to myself with hard challenges and encouraging truths. But know that I have in no way arrived when it comes to global missions. But as Paul says in Philippians 3, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So my prayer this morning is that God would create within us an all-consuming passion for making disciples among all nations. The emphasis this morning on all nations. Now, this does not mean that I'm praying that everyone would leave here today, quit their job, sell their stuff, pack their bags, and move to be full-time missionaries among the unreached. That would be an appropriate application for some of you. That being said, I don't want any of us to now sit back and say, well, this message is not for me or for all of my life. No, I do not believe that we get to pick and choose between the commands of Jesus we want to follow and the blessings of the gospel. He said, make disciples of all nations. And as Bob already mentioned, it's the essence of being a disciple. To be a disciple is to make disciples of all nations. It is not my intention this morning to motivate by way of emotions or guilt. That is not to say, however, that emotions play no role. They certainly do. 
nor is it to say that the Holy Spirit might use, uh, nor is it to deny that the Holy Spirit might use this message and his word here today to convict us of grave and serious sins in neglecting the Great Commission. But our motivation this morning will be glory, specifically the glory of divine providence, the beauty of the truth that God has purposed and planned all of human history before the foundations of the world to the praise of his glorious grace and that he will finish the mission that he started. This is the glory of Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the end goal of creation, of redemption, of everything. That God would get all glory as Jesus is worshipped by a myriad too many to number. From every language, ethnicity, tribe, people, and nation. The cause of Christ is global in its aim and secure in its completion. This is the constant theme of the whole scriptures. Starting in Genesis with the Tower of Babel when God confuses the languages, creating the nations, spreading them out in the hope that one day, through the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, blessing would come to all those nations. So global missions must be at the heartbeat of the church's mission. Well, this morning we're going to look at the book of Esther to look at a story in which God's people are in a grave an urgent position, and what caused action among them. Before we read from chapter 4, let me catch you up on the story so far. The story of Esther takes place after the nation of Israel has been exiled into Babylon, and Babylon is overthrown by Persia. The book opens with a statement of the king of Persia's reign, King Xerxes, who reigned from India to Ethiopia. That's essentially the entire populated world at this point. This is the most powerful man in the world, and he is incredibly wealthy. He hosts a party that lasts 180 days. And he caps that off with a feast in the capital city of Susa, where he invites everyone for seven days to drink the king's wine with no rules, which is a really bad idea. (laughs) So the drunk king and his buddies call for the queen to come down and parade before them. And she refuses So in his anger and his wrath, he removes her from being queen. And then he sets up a twisted and wicked beauty contest that lasts a whole year to elect the new queen. Well, Esther is an orphaned Jew who's living in Susa with her uncle Mordecai, who's a politician. She is drafted into this contest and wins, becoming queen of Persia. At the same time, Xerxes' right-hand man, a man named Haman is in very high regard with the king. And when he enters a place, everyone's supposed to fall down and bow before him. Well, Mordecai refuses to do this. The text doesn't really tell us why, but he refuses to do this, and it enrages Haman. 
And Haman decides he will have Mordecai killed. But not just Mordecai, all of Mordecai's people, all the Jews, he will have killed. Now Esther has hidden the fact that she is a Jew. And so the king has no reason to not side with Haman. And the decree is made that on a certain day that they rolled the dice to determine all the Jews in all the provinces would be killed. That's everyone that's a Jew in the world. And this is where we pick up in our text, Esther chapter 4, starting in verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend to her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on, her, on behalf of her people. So when Mordecai is confronted with the reality of the threat against God's people, which is grave and urgent and beyond him, he grieves. He is undone and identifies with the people of God as they all respond in grief. They are a weak people and their death is certain. And everyone seems to be responding this way except for Esther. Esther seems to think that either she is exempt from this or she just has no idea what's going on. Either way, the only one in the entire kingdom with any royal power and an interest in the Jews is completely uninvolved. So Mordecai gives the servant of Esther a charge to command her to go to the king and beg for his favor. What will she do? Let's read on. Starting in verse 9, And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people in the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Well, it seems that the end for Israel is not only near, but certain. Esther refuses to go. The task is too difficult. It would cost her too much, and she cannot do it. She is being asked to go into the court of the most powerful man in the world and ask him to change his mind. Not only is that unheard of, but just to walk into the court without being called by him would result in immediate death unless he chooses to be merciful. So what will, Esther, or what will Mordecai say to change her mind? Verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, 
Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. What a change. She will go, and if she perishes, so be it. What does Mordecai say that convinces her to change her mind? Well, the book of Esther is so unique in that it never once mentions God. But he is clearly the main character. And it is Mordecai's unflinching confidence in God's sovereignty that convinces Esther to be the instrument of God in bringing redemption. Let me say that again. It is the unwavering trust in God's sovereign rule over all that convinces Esther to be the instrument of of God in bringing redemption. We see Mordecai's confidence in God's sovereignty in verse 14. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Really, Mordecai? Every single Jew in the world is set to be destroyed. The situation is grim and urgent, and your best chance, the queen of the kingdom, said no to pleading your case. That's it. But what you see is Mordecai had greater confidence in the God of Israel who had promised that he would make a people for himself and protect them for his great name's sake. In the face of sure death, he has confidence that God will raise up deliverance for his people because he always has. And God does this, raising up deliverance for his people because he is absolutely in control of every detail of all of human history. The consistent testimony of Scripture is that God is in control of everything. That he is sovereign over it. Or another way to put it is that all things run in accordance with his divine providence. His divine control, care, governance. Proverbs 16 says that even when we roll the dice, the decision is of the Lord. So wait a minute, Mordecai. You are saying that you need Esther to... Do something, to act, to take action. So you tell her that God is in control of everything and planned everything before the foundation of the world and that he doesn't need you. Well, why would she act now? Seems like an odd thing to say. But that's not exactly what Mordecai says. You see, he goes on to say that God's divine providence extends to her being queen at this exact time. Esther, do you think at random chance that you were born at this time? And that out of all the women of the kingdom, you, a Jew, were selected to be queen? No, it was not chance. Because when Xerxes thought he was flexing his might and authority in hosting this wicked contest, God was sovereignly ruling over it to bring you here for the purpose of being his instrument in delivering his people. 
You see, God has ordained all things and the way that those things would come to be. You, Esther, pleading before the king for our deliverance. The sovereign king of the universe is in control of everything. From the smallest atom to the largest star, not a one moves unless he commands it or allows it. And you, Esther, have the responsibility and the privilege to participate and be used by God as the instrument of his redemption. What amazing glory. Well, it works. She acts. She goes before the king, and in a strange twist of irony and another display of divine providence, Haman is hanged on the gallows that he created for Mordecai, and the Jews are saved and able to defend themselves against their enemies. God delivers his people. Well, there are two principles that I want to learn, that I want us to learn from this text, and then I want us to see how that applies to global missions in five specific ways. The principles that we've already talked about are divine providence, God's sovereign rule over the world, and human responsibility, God's sovereign use of us as his instruments. We have already looked at Revelation 7 to see the rock-solid confidence that the task of global missions will be completed, and we will worship with people from every tribe, tongue, and language. And that is a glorious, glorious truth. And as we saw in the book of Esther, in light of a grave situation, it was this confidence in God's sovereignty that caused action. And as we look at the world today in the state of global missions, we could say that there is an urgent and grave need. Now when it comes to missions and going to all nations, as we're talking about this morning, we really mean all people groups. The Greek word for nations in the Great Commission is ethne and has the meaning described in Revelation 7, language, tribe, people. So we're not talking about political nations when we say nations. We're talking about people groups. There are approximately 16,000 people groups in the world today. 6,000 of those are unreached with the gospel. Now, unreached and unsaved are two different things. Your neighbor may be unsaved, in that they do not know Christ Jesus and the salvation he brings in the gospel. But he is not unreached because you're his neighbor and you know the gospel. You can reach him. Unreached means that there are too few, if any, Christians in a people group with too few resources to reach their own people with the gospel. That means that someone has to cross a cultural barrier in order to reach them with the gospel. Now, of those 6,000 unreached people groups, about 5,000 of them are completely unengaged, meaning there is no missionary and no church-planting effort on the ground to reach them with the gospel. Nothing is being done currently to reach them. Those unreached people contain 40% of the world's population. That's 3 billion people. Three billion people who are born, live, and die without any opportunity to know Christ and hear the good news of the gospel unless someone who knows Christ takes it to them. This should cause us to weep like Mordecai weeps. This is a big deal. Three billion people who have knowledge of God that according to Romans 1 
is sufficient to damn them to hell, and that's all. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. These three billion people stand as each one of us does apart from Christ. Guilty in our sin. We have all offended a holy God with our sin and rebellion and stand rightly under his condemnation. And that judgment is eternal, conscious torment in hell. And these three billion unreached people have no one to tell them the royal decree that has been sent out. That forgiveness is possible because the king's son has come and died and rose again for their forgiveness. It is a grave and sobering reality. But make no mistake, God is sovereign over their realities. God is utterly in control and the weight of their eternities rests upon his shoulders and not ours. He will accomplish the Great Commission in glorious fashion. But maybe, just maybe we were brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. Just maybe we have been raised up to complete this task. To be the instrument of God in bringing deliverance to the lost among the nations. You were created and redeemed so that you could be used by God to maximize the praise of his son Jesus through the telling of all the nations of his saving power. So, five specific applications. Because God is sovereign and will deliver the nations, deliver his people, have an all-consuming passion for making disciples among all nations. Commit to all of your life being all in for all the nations. Global missions is not an add-on to the ministry of the church. Now, when I first joined staff as an intern with crew here at Ball State, when Chris Sarver was our director, we had these forms that were called Evaluating Your Week. We have some staff among us, and my future director is among us too, so I should be careful what I say about these forms. Um, But the evaluating your week forms, we had to fill them out every week and and kind of share what we had done this week. I filled out maybe one all year long. And our team, uh, just for the year, just struggled to fill these forms out. We just didn't do it. And it just seemed like it wasn't that important to me because no one else was doing it. It was just easy to forget it because no one else was doing it. I think, tragically, this is how the American church views global missions. We know we're supposed to do it. We know we're supposed to be involved. But no one else is really that involved. So why do I have to be so involved? So I think, fundamentally, we need to change the way we speak about global missions. Currently, you hear a lot, I'm either called to global missions or other people say, I'm not called to global missions. But to not be called to be a part of the Great Commission is to not be a Christian. It's a command of Jesus to his disciples, and it's the essence of being a disciple, to make disciples of all nations, as Bob already explained. Now, I'm not saying that means we all go. Absolutely not. I'm I'm here by choice. I'm going to Ball State by choice. So I'm not saying that means we all go, but I am saying that we all play a role in global missions, or we sin. So instead, maybe let's talk about it in this way, maybe say, God has called me to impact the nations with the gospel 
in this way. Or maybe, I believe I am maximizing God's glory among the nations by doing blank. Now, whatever we fill in that blank might be different for each of us, but the question is, can we really say that? Can we really say that I'm spending my life to maximize God's glory among all the nations? We're going to get into some specifics about how we do that, but let's always be reevaluating this. Now, to grow in a heart for missions, I want you to check out two resources that are on the book table. I'd love to see all these resources gone by the end of today, preferably bought and not stolen. Um, First one is Radical by David Platt. Phenomenal book, really hard challenges, but glorious, encouraging truths. Wonderful. Read it. The other book is Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. If you want to grow in a heart for missions and a passion for missions, this is probably the best place to start. Now, because God is sovereign and will deliver his people, pray. God has sovereignly ordained that he would unleash the gospel and his blessings to the nations through our prayers. How freeing is that to pray? God will save people in his sovereign mercy through your prayers. That's amazing. We get to come before the king and plead the cause of the unreached. And not the wicked King Xerxes. No, the sovereign and merciful King Jesus. What grace. I did a search for the word nations in the Psalms. One in every four Psalms mentions the nations. Do one in every four of your prayers have a global aim? I know mine don't. So two quick practical prayer points. Pray for our missionaries, as Bob did today. Every week in the prayer and praise letter, which you can sign up for it by email, a different missionary that the church supports or is connected to is highlighted. Pray for them. They need your prayers. So take a day a week and pray for the missionaries that we support as a church and that you personally support. The second is this book, Operation World. This might be the most important book for the church of Jesus Christ today. This is a massive prayer guide to every country on the planet. It's filled with resources and uh, a prayer calendar. And you go by day by day praying for the unreached people of the world. It's amazing. Again, there are two copies. Hopefully one's already gone, but I would like to see both of those gone. Use it and pray for the nations. Three, because God is sovereign and will deliver his people, give. We are, by any standard, the wealthiest people to walk on the planet ever. What if in God's sovereignty, we, the most prosperous people on the planet, came for such a time as this? The radical and sacrificial giving that makes the completion of the Great Commission a reality. What if that's why God has blessed us so much financially? To be a blessing to the nations. The best possible evaluation of this is not criticizing church budgets or other people, but looking at your own giving. Ask yourself, how would the church budget be if everyone gave what I gave? Would we be able to give more to missions? Or how about your personal support of missionaries? If everyone gave the percentage or amount that you gave, would anyone make it to the field? Now, in Radical, there's a chapter on money that's really difficult and encouraging. And he sets a challenge out to set a cap to your lifestyle. To pick a number that you say, after this number per year, I'm giving everything away. His suggestion is $50,000. I think it's a pretty good number. It's a radical number. 
But the heart behind that is, is not a law that this would be it. But the heart behind it is to change the way we think about it. What if 10% tithing wasn't kind of this goal that we all shoot for but no one gets? What if that was the floor of our giving? And our personal goals were to live in such a way that we could give 20 or 30% away. What could God do with that? be amazing. Now, I say all of this not as a law, but for our joy. Our joy in Jesus is at stake. If you want to be all in for God's mission, all in for his kingdom, if you want to experience God's heart, give. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Jesus says. Your heart follows your wallet. So let us give sacrificially and radically for our joy in Jesus, that we may know him more and that others may experience the gospel and be saved. Four, because God is sovereign and will deliver his people, go and make disciples. Now, our going might look different. For some, your going is to your workplace, your neighborhood, your classroom, your dormitory. Your going is no less valuable because you go to the reached. Your calling is no less valuable because you go to the reached. I believe I'm in this category for now at least. But for others, you have felt God nudge your heart when you hear about the nations. You have the ambition of Paul to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. For others, you're, you're really not sure what your calling is. And I want to say to all of us that God has uniquely blessed us in the United States. We are the most mobile people in the world. With that blessing, I believe, comes great responsibility. It used to be that when you became a full-time cross-cultural missionary, you left everything and you never came back. But now, with technology, I video chat with a former Ball State student who's in East Asia right now almost once a week. That's amazing. God has showered us with unprecedented mobility, and I don't believe that's for nothing. I believe that he has raised up this generation for such a time as the completion of the Great Commission. We get to be a part of the greatest activity on the planet, God's glory being known as people come to know Jesus. So let's go. So practically, what does that mean? If you're a college student here today, I want to challenge you to consider going for at least a year after you graduate before going into your field. Give one year of your life, or two, to have an eternal impact among the nations. You're never going to be more free than you are right now. So go. Crew, the organization I work for, offers stints, which are one-year or two-year commitments to pretty much anywhere in the world. Taylor students, you are also able to apply for those. Really, anyone's able to apply for those. I know other missions organizations, like Navigators or the missions arm of our denomination, MTW, Mission to the World, offer similar programs. So talk to one of our missionaries, go and serve for a year. For everyone else, non-college students, I challenge you to go sometime, for some amount of time, somewhere. Take one of our short-term missions trips to Mexico, or go with another organization overseas somewhere. I know that many of you have done this in the congregation and can vouch for me that it changed your life. My trip to East Asia rocked my world and set a new trajectory for my walk with God. It's amazing. One last challenge, one last thing to think about. What would it be like for you to retire into missions? This is a really cool concept to me. If you plan and save well, 
you can retire as a self-funded missionary. That's amazing. As it stands right now, I'm praying that God would allow Whitney and I to do this, that we would spend our last days before meeting King Jesus among an unreached people group, unless he completes it before them, which would be way better. Finally, because God is sovereign and will deliver his people, say with Esther, if I perish, I perish. This task is not easy and it will cost us. It will cost us time in prayer. It will cost us money in giving. It will cost us our dreams in going. And it may even cost us our lives in dying. Many of the unreached live in the most difficult places of the world. Places plagued with poverty, injustice, war, violence, and hatred of Christians. If it's such a difficult and dangerous task, and God will surely do it, then why should we risk our necks? Well, the example of Esther is great for us. She saw that she could be the instrument of God in use, and that God could use her to deliver his people. And we can be that as well. We can be the instrument of God in bringing the gospel to those who have no knowledge of Christ. We can live sacrificially and radically in order to send as many as we can to herald Christ to the lost and dying. And we can storm the throne room of heaven with our prayers, pleading that the sovereign one would bring his kingdom. God is sovereign, and just maybe we were brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. But we have more than the example of Esther. We have King Jesus, and Jesus is the better Esther. You see, Esther delivers God's people from an unjust decree with the threat of death, setting the innocent free. But Jesus delivers God's people from the just decree of God's holy wrath by his death, setting the guilty, you and me, and the nations, free. Hebrews 13, 12 through 14 says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We can say that with Esther that we will go and if we perish, we perish. Because death is not the end for us. It is only the beginning. Death is the world's greatest threat against us, but in God's sovereign mercy, it is the greatest blessing for us. Entrance into eternal fellowship with the Son, Jesus, who died for us. So let us spend our days crowning this Lord, Lord and King Jesus, Lord of all. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that you are the God of all the nations. And we pray that your glory would go among all the nations and that you would use this congregation mightily in service to your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.